0: How do you know our name, Goose? Ah, silly boys, it's me, Dr. Willie Soon. I've known you since you were little pudgy boys with only enough money to buy a mid-sized yacht. Ew, you're bringing up painful memories of our low-liquidity childhood, Dr. Willie Goose. No, Dr. Willie Soon. Come on now, Chuck. Ah. Your Charles G. Koch Foundation gave me $230,000 for research that says that humans are not the primary cause of global warming. And Davy, that research is used heavily throughout your museum exhibit.
1: Solid gold fact. I'm Rosanna Stevens, and this is the antidote for the Belladonna, an interview podcast profiling women and non-binary comedy writers set in a place of personal significance for them. That squawking goose character you just heard is this episode's guest, Libby Schreiner, performing in the 2016 podcast, The Koch Brothers Mystery Show. It was a parody adventure star podcast, and it featured actual information about the Koch brothers and their involvement in a plethora of American institutions and took that information to build these outrageous fantastical plots that involved the Koch brothers going out into the world to ensure that their empire remained safe. That particular episode you just heard was actually written by Libby and it's titled The Mystery of the Museum Manifesto. Today, Libby also works in satirical news. She is a senior staff writer for America's finest news source, The Onion. And that's the main reason why I wanted to talk to Libby, because she writes satirical topical news headlines for the most famous publication to feature news satire. Everybody wants to know what it takes to be one of those writers. But then what I learned about Libby was all of this really rich backstory about what she did before she did comedy. For example, Libby received a chemistry degree from Iowa State University and worked as an industrial paint chemist, and then she threw her career away to pursue comedy full time. But practicality and perseverance are the key words in this interview, and truly I have never been so inspired by those two concepts before in my entire life. Libby met me at the door into the Onion head offices. They're a few floors up in an old, really regular-looking building with glass doors, right beside the Chicago subway station on the Purple and Brown lines. The station sits suspended above the roads of Chicago, which at the time were being ripped up by a jackhammer. Hey, Libby. Rosanna? Yeah. Hi, nice can to you meet you. Can you get your- Thanks for making time to do this. The building's entranceway features a central lift and a white stairwell that curls around the lift. And on each floor, this pillar of ascension peels off to these white doors that lead to different businesses and offices all the way up.
0: We're going to sneak into an office. Sweet.
1: As you can hear, we took the lift. Then Libby walked me through an unmanned open plan work and kitchen area.
0: I reserved it. Oh, awesome.
1: You can hear Libby's feet on the ground in the office and the only reason I mention this is because it's the key sign that this building is old. Libby takes me to a cosy meeting room with a wooden coffee table and two grey sofas and the only thing that ever interrupts us is that footfall. I'm gonna to get to talking to you about comedy being a passage to writing, but before that, where did you originally come from?
0: Yeah, I'm originally from Iowa. I'm from uh, Waterloo, Iowa, and I went to Iowa State University. And then after I graduated, I moved to Chicago to do comedy. And after graduating, What was the
1: decision that led to actually making that geographical change? Because it's actually quite a big one.
0: Yeah, I had never been anywhere as big as Chicago before, but I had read and heard and all these books uh, about, you know, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and everyone who I was idolizing that they were in Chicago learning and making stuff before they moved on to New York and LA. And so it seemed like the place to go. What did you idolize about them? I think I just really liked how smart they were like they were clever and smart and yet also could be like gross but in a way that I feel like they're still maintaining control of which I like a lot
1: it's funny you say that on the way here for some reason I was thinking about women particularly and non-binary folks in comedy are sometimes a little afraid to go to the gross place mm-hmm. or articulate something that's really confronting but hilarious for people who have the same lived experience. The first time that it occurred to me that this was something that I might encounter was listening to Tina Fey's audiobook and having her describe that interaction that Amy Poehler has with um, Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon. Fallon. And it's just this fantastic moment of almost exactly what you were describing which is realizing that something is smart and strong and clever and realizing that you can have that companionship in your practice or your craft Mm -hmm. coming to Chicago did you find that
0: Uh, I think I did I have been so lucky to end up with the kind of people I ended up with even through happenstance of like uh, my first Herald team out of I.O. had some incredible women on it. Had Allison Gates uh, and Laurel Kralbacher, who are now forming at Second City and writing on SNL. Had Becca Barish, who is now my neighbor again and is incredibly smart and fabulous. And again, all people who are like willing to be wild and kind of be the star of the show in a way that I really admire. For those who aren't familiar
1: with what a Herald team is, would you just quickly... Yes.
0: A Herald team is the I.O. theaters like house teams. And so when you finish the program, you would hope to be placed on a Herald team. At what stage
1: did doing improv begin to translate into writing stuff?
0: Uh, it actually took a very long time for me. Uh, do you want me to pause it all for this? Sorry. <laughs> I
1: feel like it's part of the ambience
0: okay. and I love it. Yeah,
1: this building is
0: crumbling. But having said that
1: as well, like the building is crumbling, but just to quickly describe where we are, we're in like a very clean cut, office. The Onion logo is frosted onto the doors. Everything around us is quite modern, but the structure itself is quite aged.
0: Yeah, that's a very nice way to put that. (laughs) Yeah. So my transition from uh, an improviser to a writer was a long time coming. It took me a long time to even be able to consider the phrase, I'm a writer. I was only doing improv for the first probably four or five years I was here. And then another great woman, Mary-Kate Walthall, One time in passing said, like, I think what you write is funny. You should make a Twitter account. And so I started putting jokes on there and then didn't really consider myself a writer. But this Onion Apprenticeship Fellowship packet kind of fell in my lap. It it went out to everybody. And I thought, well, this is a comedy thing. I'll try this. But I wasn't intending to write comedy.
1: At what point did you start to accept that
0: you were a writer? I mean, probably when I got uh, hired. Yeah. (laughs) Probably. Yeah once I had a a job offer I was like oh I guess I am a writer now that I've been doing it for 10 months
1: What did your life when you were getting this stuff together look like on a day to day
0: basis Uh, Like how I was doing comedy pre Onion.
1: Yeah and when you arrived here and you had come from Iowa what the hell did you do to start off with to make it feel like you were you were on the right track? Cuz I can imagine that moving from Iowa is incredibly intimidating and now you're here but there's this like gap of in between.
0: Yeah. I am a very practical person. So it was important to me to use my degree when I got here to Chicago. And I was very fortunate that I was able to yeah, land a job in my field, which was chemistry. And when I moved here, To Chicago from Iowa I basically treated comedy at large because I didn't know what I wanted to do I just wanted it to be comedy as sort of like an evening job so during the day I was working as an industrial paint chemist and then getting home from work and turning around and going out the door and watching shows watching improv comedy several nights a week going to my classes. I was trying to take as many classes as I could around the city. And then uh, once I got most of the way through those classes, starting to perform, but mostly watching.
1: That really resounds with me Mm -hmm. because sometimes I do feel as though there is a pressure to just pick the one thing and go for it instead of seeing doing it all as practical to a degree, so long as it's kind of supporting you being able to get to the next thing. So it's really reassuring to hear that it's very normal to be that practical.
0: Yeah. I am a huge proponent of like remaining practical, Uh, having a job in my field. One, I do think it was like incredibly beneficial to my comedy to like go into work every day uh, and put on a lab coat and work with a bunch of 50 year old dudes in a lab and in the plant to be exposed to different kinds of ideas and people. I wasn't just working uh, with other 25 year olds. Uh, who are also doing comedy in their free time. And it gave me the breathing room to go like, well, I want to take this class and I can save up and have $300 to take this class I care about. I think some people really do feel better and more creative when they're kind of like, well, I need to make this work because I have put myself in a situation where I have no other options. I get too stressed out for that to work for me. I think some people can do it to a beautiful degree and produce great stuff. But I was too stressed out i wanted to have a backup career basically having already up and ready to go if and when i decided to hang comedy up it's the Cope brothers mystery show it's the mystery show with the Cope
2: brothers this week's episode the mystery of the museum
1: manifesto we take you now to the boys whiling away the hours
2: in a bunker deep underneath the washington monument Give me the name of a Roman guy. Fides! And a gerund. Flourishing! And
0: one group of naive people we take advantage of. College Republican clubs! Great! This super pack name generator will help us name all our new generic sounding think tanks. Great! I was getting bored of those stupid old Americans for prosperity and citizens for a sound economy. What are we naming our new lobbying groups? Great question. Get a drum roll going, television's Kevin Sorbo. Sorbo, Sorbo, Sorbo. Chuck, open Sorbo's hanging sex cage so he can get the drum kit. You got it, Davy.
1: Political joke writing. You've come from a chemistry background. You've come to Chicago to do improv and to do comedy. Where and when did politics come into play? Was it a natural progression?
0: I feel like politics have been sort of heaped into my lap this whole time. Like, um, uh, my, Fred, my friends, Brad Einstein and Gary Pascal originally came up with the Koch Brothers Mystery Show, which is the first time I considered myself a writer. They said like, hey, write on this show. And I was like, wow, they think I can do this? This is crazy. I don't know anything about politics. Uh, and I was only kind of following politics and the Koch Brothers then to yeah, write the show. And then I got to The Onion and I was like, oh man, yeah, I'm going to have to like read uh, several newspapers every day now and like really follow what's going on, which did coincide with the election, which I feel like a lot of people were like me and were like, oh crap, I probably should be paying more attention. And I wasn't. And yeah, it's become sort of a thing where it's like, well, we need to comment on politics because it's happening every day. Uh But Left to My Own Devices, uh, I was never really one for political comedy. And how about now, Left to Your Own Devices? Still wouldn't write it if I had the... uh, If I could do whatever I want, it probably would not involve uh, the White House.
1: Something that I really admire about The Onion is that the headlines are jokes, effectively. Mm -hmm. And it takes a very particular kind of mentality and ability and lyricism with words to really nail that down, as well as having a point of view. Is that something that you were also able to produce in improv? So for example, you know how there are all those games that you play in improv where like you have to say a joke, like a dad joke or, you know, call something out really quickly. Was that something that you found that you were also very good at?
0: No. (laughs) Yeah, no, I am very bad at short form improv game stuff, uh, like quick on your feet things I had never felt like were for me. And the Onion voice, uh, a lot of it came down to like practice. I think uh, what got me in the door was a strong point of view. And then what kept me here was like um, learning and learning and learning the voice until I had the voice.
1: Learning the voice while you are in the office and you've kind of already been recognized as somebody who is of interest, I imagine comes with some pressure.
0: Yeah, I imagine it was more self-imposed. But yes, that first year I was very wound up. I think I was spending all my time pitching headlines, thinking of headlines, reading The Onion and then like waking up in a panic uh, with like half of a thought. And like trying to write that down and be like, I think that's a headline. How did that change? I think it takes time. And sooner or later, the pressure valve has to come off. Otherwise, uh, you're going to get sick. So the pressure, I think, just slowly came off over time. And it's still there in certain ways, but it's uh, more manageable now that it's my day-to-day life.
1: How do you navigate having a point of view and using that as valuable as well as learning the tone and style? Because to me, they seem like two different things that you then have to combine over time. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. I'll see if I can uh, take a swing at answering it. Um, yeah, I think you need to maintain your own voice and kind of going like, here's the tools The Onion has presented me. These are the boxes they want me to work inside of. And inside of these boxes, I'm going to write what I think is funny and interesting. And... Then you kind of mold to each other in a bit, like uh, I can get feedback early on going like, well, we don't write headlines like this. You need to make it sound newsier and going, "Okay, I'm going to keep pushing this idea that I think is funny. But now I'm going to try to reword it in a way that reads like a newspaper. And then it works. There's like a level of perseverance to this. Oh, yeah, you need to be very, very resilient, uh, specifically to write for The Onion. I don't know if the numbers are still correct, but the numbers I've always heard thrown around are that we accept about 1% of what we write. So I write headlines all day long, everyone on staff does. And then you go to a meeting, and you're lucky if a couple of them even get moved forward to the next round. And of those, on a good day, maybe one of them gets to get published. I have some headlines that I have like labored over, and I will try to turn them in every couple of months. And I'll spend time being like, fix this word, change this around, get it at a different angle. And nobody wants this headline, and it never goes well. And then, the thing you wrote five minutes before the meeting to go like, oh, I need, I should probably have another thing for my list, uh, we will get a huge laugh, and it'll get in the paper. And you're like, why? What is that? What happened? Yes, and I think it's probably yeah. You're probably like more in tune with like. Uh, what's funny at, like, a base instinctual level in that time, it can be infuriating. It can feel exhilarating or infuriating depending on what kind of day you're having. (laughs) Yeah.
1: God, I just imagine that doing this every single day would be... I mean, for me, it would be immensely stressful because, like, I predominantly suck at it because I overthink it. Like, the moment that I have to sit down and be like, I'm going to make headlines that work, Mm -hmm. I'm like, or I could drink washing powder, and I would probably do a better job. (laughs) Right, right.
0: No, I feel that a big part of this job that I have learned to do, which has been, like, incredibly helpful, is to just sit down and start doing it. And I feel like it's an unfortunate truth, and it's a good truth. Because at some point it's like, oh, God, I just got to sit down and put the work in. Mm. But it also feels great to be like, if you sit down and put the work in, hopefully you'll get to the other side sooner or later, and that there's no magic trick it's just like the grind i feel like my first year here was sort of like i don't want to say death by a thousand cuts mm-hmm. but like um growth by a thousand cuts because you just had to like let the rejection wash over you and like pick out how to get better
1: mm-hmm.
0: i'd sit down with um a writer and be like here's my headlines like could you go over them with me and even when they're going as gently as possible going like I like what you're doing here, and I get it, and I just think you could change this. It hurts so much when you're brand new at it. It's like, you want to change my thing? I spent so much time on it. But as soon as I could get over the feeling of, like, I didn't write anything today that people liked, and that's fine. And tomorrow I'm going to write something, and people might like it. It's like a question of self-worth, right? Mm -hmm. It's
1: like, oh, but I'm here for a good enough reason, and Mm -hmm. I am good enough, and I've been seen to be interesting. And instead of seeing that as pressure, I need to see that as, like, An opportunity for growth.
0: Yes. And I still forget that. And I'll have sometimes even like a bad month where I'm like, I've lost it. It's gone now. I had a nice time (laughs) with this career and it's never coming back. Uh, (laughs) Then you got to remind yourself, I've had headlines that I've liked in the past Mm -hmm. uh, that have done well in the room and in the public. And like, it's okay. And it's going to come back and will probably come back when I stop agonizing over it.
1: What is your favorite headline that you've ever written?
0: I think um, my favorite headline that I've ever written, that I tend to come back to, is um, an op-ed by uh, Jimmy Carter that we ran when Trump became president, which was, uh, you people made me give up my peanut farm before I got to be president. Uh, And I just wrote the headline, and another writer wrote the copy. But I was new to The Onion, and I didn't totally understand how to write The Onion voice yet, so to get one like that, that everyone liked and then did well on the internet was like, wow, it felt exhilarating. It was incredible.
1: I'm really interested about the bit after that, that's like, and now life goes on and I have to continue to get it. What Mm -hmm. did you find yourself doing after that? Or were you pretty good at being like, cool. Let's see when that happens again.
0: Yeah, I think you have to, because what's been really illuminating at work here at The Onion is like, there's different ways to like feel good about what you've written. I have a couple things, like I said, that I pitch constantly and people don't like, but I'm like, I know it's funny and it's maybe not right for this venue, but it's funny. And then you have the next level where you say something in the room and the room loves it and it crushes in the room and it doesn't do well on the internet. Wow. And we love it. And it's like our, our baby. And it's like an all time favorite in the room and no one else cares. And then other times where everyone on staff is like, this is adequate. This is a perfectly fine Onion headline, and then it does incredibly well online.
1: After I left our interview, I was really captivated by this idea that The Onion can write really interesting headlines, but ultimately can't really predict which ones are going to be incredibly successful online. So I emailed Libby and asked her if she'd send me some examples of headlines that she was talking about. Headlines that The Onion staff thought would be fantastic that did fine online, headlines that they had no idea would become incredibly successful online, and also a headline that Libby herself really, really loved. And here are the headlines that she sent me. Here are examples of headlines that Libby or the staff really loved brainstorming that did okay online. Local goose finally lands spot at tip of V. Cows trample dozens of lobsters to death in escalating surf and turf war. And finally, Free couch sitting on curb for months, with a picture of a public bench alongside it. The next three are examples of headlines that they did not predict would really blow up, but did. WWE forced to shoot aggressive wrestler after child climbs into steel cage. Kitten thinks of nothing but murder all day. The last one is a visual joke about the number four and the Chicago style manual. So with that in mind, it says four copy editors killed in ongoing AP-style Chicago manual gang violence. And finally, the headline that Libby totally loves is fire hydrant blows load all over hot neighbourhood kids. We're in the Onion office. You've just described kind of what happens in a meeting. What does a general day look like for you doing this job?
0: Because our schedules are so all over the place, we're sort of like on a monthly schedule versus a weekly schedule i'd say the gist of it is uh big stretches of time either working at home or working alone in the office with headphones on hyper focused on your own thing and then coming together once or twice a day for meetings where then we all talk about what we've written and work on pitching each other's ideas and then trying to produce stories and uh news and brief articles out of what everyone spent their their day doing alone
1: what would you say the most useful thing to
0: have in that environment is for you i mean i definitely need the time alone to go focus i feel like this makes me sound a little lame but i put on headphones and i put on uh, like rain and thunderstorm sounds And I just blast that while I work for a couple hours uh, because I can't hear any sounds or music. And I try to sometimes have to get up and go away because, as you can hear, our office can be a little creaky and hard to focus in. And there's people everywhere and they're fun people. And you want to take your headphones off and chat, but you really got to focus.
1: I don't know if you get much feedback from... um... Uh, from the public about... I mean, I imagine you get particular kinds of
0: feedback from the public about The Onion. (laughs) Certainly. Yeah. Oh, I read the the public feedback in (laughs) box. It can be pretty brutal. (laughs) Well, uh,
1: when I first got to Chicago this trip, I was sitting in a cafe, and these two women in their late 30s, I would say, were sitting in the cafe with their dad, and they'd all come from interstate, and they were sharing this Onion headline. I can't remember which one it was... But they were just like basically bonding over the view that The Onion had like articulated. And it was this really beautiful moment. And I just was so stoked. I don't know. Like, obviously, I play no part in The Onion. But, you know, I just it made me really happy to actually hear people connecting and bonding and laughing because of the way comedy had said something.
0: Yeah, that's really nice. And I think we probably all forget it at some level because you put it out there and then you never hear about it ever again. Uh, and most people reach out to tell you uh, that like you're a disgrace uh, and that you should be uh, giving apologies for your headlines, uh, which is what our public f- feedback is a lot of. Gosh, Upset I imagine people. that's hard. It's fine. I feel like you just roll with it. Because uh, we also get ones where people will say, like, like this is great thank you uh
1: but it might be nice to have some more of that not that like (laughs) i'm directly suggesting
0: that right now certainly (laughs) uh but it's nice to hear yeah times when other people like it or reading it because yeah i feel like we're kind of just working away here and it's easy to lose track of like it goes out somewhere and other a person is reading it and they may or may not like it it's it's nice Hmm. yeah because in my world the only people reading it are like my dad (laughs) uh And, and me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate Mm -hmm. description of the Onion readership on the whole. Just my dad sending my headlines to his friends. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any other projects that you are working on at the moment? What am I working on? Nothing too big. I've kind of taken a step away from everything. Uh to get some breathing room and to kind of write, like figure out what I like to actually write. uh, And if I have time outside of the onion, what I would make. What are you
1: discovering about yourself in that process?
0: I have discovered recently that, so I am a writer now and I consider myself a comedy writer, but I really miss being on stage. So I'm trying to find ways to go like, well, maybe it's time to write. A solo show or get a group together and put on a sketch show or something because I, I really missed that like immediacy of like putting something up making something together and then having like a, a great time uh, performing it in front of people who are like laughing in the moment
1: to do something like that and to do what you're doing day to
0: day now what do you need I think I need space now that now that I'm writing comedy and I'm sure you probably hear this a lot of like when you're in it all the time to go home and do it is like not A special treat. It's more of a slog, which is probably why I have nothing uh, right now that I am like particularly working on because I'm kind of like recouping.
1: Also, I don't know about you, but like I definitely become comedy immune. So the more you do it, the harder it is to kind of even discern what
0: is funny. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's almost harder in a way to sit down and think like, well, what do I like and what is funny because I think, unfortunately you kind of are self-centering even quicker uh, than when you're learning to write. Speaking
1: of what is funny, I was wondering if you would share with us a piece of
0: humor, comedy, or satire that you really, really admire. The piece of comedy I'm most obsessed with right now is The Righteous Gemstones, uh, Danny McBride's new show. It's uh, one of the few times I've like really laughed out loud watching comedy and Edie Peterson who plays one of the gemstones siblings is like we were talking about earlier. She's playing a lunatic who's like really monstrous, uh, but I can't get enough of it. And she's playing well off of uh, Tim Baltz, who's a Chicago guy who I've gotten to watch go from like being here in Chicago to like finding success out in LA. And it's just like enthralling to watch uh, people be successful and to be like, you're so great. You're so funny. Please make more stuff. In terms
1: of the show being something that you find really funny and that character particularly being something that kind of re- resounds with what you laugh about, what do you think it is about that that makes you laugh?
0: I think, and I feel like this probably speaks to all of like Danny McBride's stuff that I've watched so far, is like, it's so in some ways, like, it's a good encapsulation of, like, the worst of us. Like, he does such a good job of being, like, an immature, gross, rude jerk in a way that (laughs) you still like him. Like, I just watched um, a Vice Principal's episode where twice in the episode he gets scared and he whips his laptop across the room and then he blames the person who was in the room for scaring him for, like, breaking his stuff. Which is, like, such base-level childish Reactions uh, and to see it put into play on like every adult in the show is like incredible.
1: Libby, finally, is there anything that you think is just really important that you'd like to talk about in relation to comedy?
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to maintain interests outside of comedy. I know we're all laser focused on the next thing and like making the stuff and making it happen, but you'll have a bigger, better, more interesting worldview if you're also like living a life. Uh, It looks like I was saying earlier, when I was at Daubert, some of the funniest things I experienced were in that office with just regular office politics and the day-to-day sort of drudgery of like a nine to five, on par and equally as funny as things I was seeing at comedy shows later in the evening. And I think it gives you more to draw from if you're surrounding yourself with unique experiences that aren't necessarily intent on making you get better at comedy.
1: It also sounds like you have enough material from that experience just like anecdotally and vaguely to kind of create a solo show.
0: <laughs> I think I should. Yeah. It was um it was a real trip and I've always I've spent some years wondering about what I could do to mix science and chemistry and comedy into one show. Who knows, maybe I should take another crack at it. I
1: thought you were going to say maybe I should take another class, and I was like, I think you're (laughs) fine.
0: (laughs) Who knows? I I just took a stand-up class uh, like a year ago. Oh, really? Because I was sort of panicking that I didn't uh, know how to write anything outside of The Onion's voice.
1: Oh, God, I can imagine that would have been so odd in a way, because in one sense you have this secure recognition that you're funny, but not necessarily in another form.
0: Right. I think that's just par for the course i'm not performing as much as i was when i wasn't working at the onion and so you kind of just become like a joke machine for a bit and then you're like i'm this joke machine do i know how to write comedy do i know what anything funny is uh i think anyone who's like in the middle of doing something creative has that feeling whether you're writing a book and you're like i don't think i even know what books are anymore uh Yeah, and it just kind of stays with you no matter what you're doing. Absolutely. Libby, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming down.
1: That was an interview with senior staff writer for The Onion and general comedy talent Libby Schreiner. To round off each episode of The Antidote, we're bringing you a performance of a comedy piece that was featured on The Belladonna and is now being brought to life by the vocal talents of readers from around the world. Here is this episode's reading.
2: I am the only tampon in the beast's castle. Written by Brianna Haney. Read by Tove Chepkarir Goy. Look, I wanna be a human again just like all the other enchanted objects in this castle. But as the only tampon in this cursed place, I absolutely do not want a woman living here. If I'm used once, I will die and if I'm gonna die in any pool of blood, I'd much rather it be my own. When I was human, I was the castle's midwife, but after the spell was cast, I was turned into a tampon. Being a tampon really isn't that bad when there are no menstruating women in the building. Before Belle arrived, I often reminisced about my human years with Mrs. Potts, enjoyed moonlit trysts with Lumiere, and slept soundly within the drawers of Madame Le Grand Bouche. But now that Belle is here, I shiver in cold terror from my hiding place disguised as a finger of a cherub on the ballroom ceiling. When Belle first arrived, all the other objects jumped for joy. Whispers of, maybe she's the one, the one to break the spell, filled the halls. But not me, nope. As the only tampon in this dank place, I was terrified. I kept having nightmares of my unceremonious funeral, a beautifully manicured finger digging around for my string, pulling my heavy lifeless body from the darkness and dumping me to rot in a landfill for the next 450 years. I attempted to point out to the beast that for my sake and for Belle's sake, he should stock the castle with some feminine hygiene products, but all he did was let out a roar followed by a gruff "ew." and retreated to the West Wing. Oh, I'm sorry, Beast. Is it hard being a man trapped inside a monster's body, talking to a tampon about periods? Do you know what's even harder? Being a woman trapped inside a tampon, trapped inside another woman's body, and literally drowning. Sorry. It's just that it's difficult being the only animated object whose life somehow got worse when the thing we've been praying to happen actually happened. You don't think I want to befriend Belle, too? Every day, I fight the feeling of a song in my heart and the need to sing to her. While Lumiere was busy singing about how to eat, I was thinking up songs to explain the dangers of toxic shock syndrome. But unfortunately, Belle must never see me. In a castle with only itchy tool to stop the flow, She'll definitely be desperate enough to use me, even despite my screams of protest emanating from her crotch as I slowly soak up her blood. Oh, what a curse to be turned into an enchanted one-use tampon in a castle with a woman of child-bearing age. All I can do now is pray that Belle doesn't find me, or the spell breaks before she does. God, life with Belle would be much less stressful if I were an enchanted diva cup. Tove
1: Goi is a performer and vocalist born and raised in Nakuru, Kenya. She recently worked on the award-winning short film Altered by Dystopian Creatives, and she's currently based in Copenhagen. Brianna Haney is a comedy writer based in Los Angeles and she's one of the new managing editors for the Belladonna. Her writing has been in The New Yorker and McSweeney's and you can find both of their social media handles in the notes for this episode. In those show notes, you will also find a link to Bree's original piece on the Belladonna, a few of the onion pieces mentioned by Libby, and a link to the Koch Brothers Mystery Show podcast, which leads me to say a big thank you to Gary Pascal for allowing us to use bits from Episode 5 of the Koch Brothers Mystery Show, which was written by Libby Schreiner. And while you're on the internet, why not subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud? You can also check out everything that the Belladonna's doing on Twitter at the underscore Belladonna's or on on Facebook at the Belladonna Comedy. Next time on the Antidote, we're sitting down with founder and editor in chief of Flex, a satire magazine for people of color, NPR fellow, and host of the new podcast All Dick Is Trash, Millie Tamara's.
0: For so long, people are like, "No, satire is only like white guys writing an online article," you know. Talk soon.